0: I'm Christopher Rice and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn and you're listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric and true crime TV club is back Back. we're back Back. with true crime
1: (laughs) back we hope you've had a great holiday and that you've enjoyed the non true crime TV versions of um, Christopher and Eric presents Christopher and
0: Eric which is Christopher um, and Eric inevitably talk about dieting and nutrition Well, we
1: are gay men from West Hollywood of a certain age. (laughs) Of a
0: certain age, and the the age keeps going up. (laughs) That's part of the problem. And it's always swimsuit competition here. Oh, my God. Always. It is. I swear to God. You bring friends here, or friends come to visit you from other parts of the country, and they really don't It takes them like a day to get over the fact that everybody a lot of people here are just really insanely beautiful. Well,
1: this is where, you know, all of those underwear models and porn stars and TV stars and all of those people that you know from the world,
0: they all live here. And they go to the grocery store here. here. So you
1: see them everywhere. It's not everywhere. like you can avoid that party. It's not like at a party. It's not like a premiere. They're at the grocery store. They're at the dry cleaners. They're walking down the street. They're everywhere you go to eat. They're everywhere. They're... And it's wonderful. The scenery is the main reason I live here, but it does have its own set It has of
0: a wearying, effect. Effect on on those of us who are getting older a wearying a
1: wearying effect. effect a great the world is too much with me my
0: novel about getting older in Hollywood is a great wearying the mirror by cracked Kristen from Ray. side to side all right our, fuck all that shit yeah, we're here brutal. to talk we're talking really about death to and live murder here in paradise. it's terrible it's sixty seven degrees in January it's just awful how will I'm we ever make it surrounded by the most gorgeous people in the world it's just awful I always say it's like I live
1: in the ugliest apartment building. in in my neighborhood, which I say is great because I don't have to look at it. Other people see my apartment building from their beautiful apartment building across (laughs) the street, and I see theirs Uh, out the window. And it's the same kind of effect in West Hollywood. The scenery is all, (laughs) I can see, I'm not looking in the mirror all day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Eric you are talking about yourself like you are some monstrous
1: thing, and that is not the case. I am not a monstrous thing, and I will not be modeling uh, Calvin Klein underwear
0: on a billboard
1: (laughs) anytime soon or ever again in my
0: life. again, but you did have a period where you did model underwear on billboards. It, nobody talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, you I had, were young and you needed the money, as they say. There were naked pictures of me in
1: the uh, National Enquirer. I think that that's there was. I have arrived. There was. There
0: was. You were the, uh, you ghost wrote, in air quotes, Pamela Anderson's novels. and uh, Also in air quotes. Also in air quotes. <laughs> novels. Novels. <laughs> and so um, some you were able to recreate the cover photo that she had done, which was a David LaChapelle photo. And you did it. <laughs> Which involved you being naked and spread out my on a green sin- piece I did of carpet, my own centerfold photo. Yeah, if we can find it, we will post it on our Facebook page. Uh, just a reminder that Facebook—the first picture of myself that I ever posted on Facebook. Was it when I first? It was.
1: I remember when I first got a Facebook account. I actually used that one to post on it because it just seemed like it was funny.
0: Yeah, this is all well and good. that is we're, it? That we're all having of it? this banter? Well and good, but we have an episode. Oh my god! Of, of we we were going to wind down the clock, and we try to keep our I'm episodes sorry. an hour long because you know people are busy and they don't want to listen to us go on and on and on. Uh-huh. But. Our banter, which was unscripted and unplanned, is a great lead-in to the general topic of this episode of Vanity Fair Confidential, Murder I guess it Most Successful really because we didn't we're, even yes. calculate that. There's even a moment we where they say to do that. they say of the murder victim, spoiler alert, we find out at the very beginning of the episode that she's the murder victim, actress, aspiring actress Vicky Morgan, moved to Los Angeles to be an actress and then collided with the reality that Every other beautiful person who wanted to be an actor in the country has also moved to Los Angeles. That's the other flip side of it is that every waiter,
1: waitress, bartender, and whatever, they're all the most beautiful people from all their high schools and all their towns and colleges all over the country. They're also here because only about 200 of them get a job
0: being a movie star and the Uh rest of them have
1: to, you know, keep dinner on the table somehow.
0: Absolutely. If they stay, a lot of people don't stay. I remember the attrition rate. Is that the correct use of the word attrition is it is attrition? People who leave or people who arrive? I don't know. It's all Latin to me. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's just words. Yeah, that would be, I would think that the people who leave would
1: count as the attrition.
0: I remember being a young gay man. I'm not gay anymore, <laughs> but I'm still young. <laughs> Here in Los Angeles. <laughs> We're still not talking about this fucking episode, but we'll get there eventually. And I remember we referenced it going obliquely. to a pool party in the hills with a lot of boy soup, as they call it, a swimming pool and producers and whatever and all that sort of bullshit. Uh, and I remember going back to the same house, same host, three years later, all different boys. The whole cast had changed. It was like in three years. They had flamed out. They had... Their parents had come to get them. They some of them had died. It was like whatever. So <laughs> they had stopped dieting. They had stopped dieting and were cut from the guest list because the host was a spiritually bankrupt asshole. No, I don't know. I don't know about all this. But speaking of spiritually bankrupt, this episode of Vanity Fair Confidential focuses on the 1983 murder of an actress. I, I keep saying actress, but she didn't ever actually never actually become any acting an actress
1: involved. I don't know what she did in the bedroom. It might have have involved acting. Some acting. Most of us
0: have to act in the bedroom. It's just a fact of life. But um, uh, the 1983 murder of a young woman uh, named Vicki Morgan. An aspiring actress named Vicki Morgan. Uh, This is the first time we are discussing an episode of the series Vanity Fair Confidential. So we might want to talk a little bit about how this series is constructed. If I remember correctly, there are no reenactments. Is that correct?
1: No, there are no reenactments. This is sort of like, um, just for openers, I have to say, I really love this series, the Vanity Fair Confidential. It made me miss Graydon Carter.
0: Oh, did it? And the former editor of Vanity Fair. Yeah, I just... Why was that?
1: The style of it, the choices that they made, the photographs, the look of it, the Mm -hmm. graphics, all of those things. He was such a class act. I'm really, I, I have to say I'm really sad as I watch... Vanity Fair decline now that he has left it. It is is not what it was. Mm. They've actually started highlighting their um, archive. Mm-hmm. because the articles they're doing are not as consistently, it's not the same magazine Oh, anymore. that's it's a shame. It's not as beautiful, it's not as well-written, and this was very much of the Graydon Carter era, the the use of um, the gold letters and the sort of uh, crocodile bag. Yeah. The, you know,
0: the uh, leather basically, background. Basically, the idea beautiful. of this show is that in an episode, they take you into a deep, they do a deep dive on a Vanity Fair investigative piece, basically. Apparently. And... This was an opportunity for them to talk about another bygone era of the magazine Vanity Fair because the writer Dominic Dunn, who was one, I would say, one of their most famous writers who covered mostly crime in Los Angeles, the intersection of crime and Hollywood, um, became fascinated with the Vicki Morgan case, and he became fascinated with it in a way that actually endangered some of his friendships and connections here in town. Yeah. he had been a It tele- was his
1: first, they said, his first big crime investigative piece for yes. Vanity Fair was, in fact, this story.
0: And we'll get to why it was a complicated decision for him to make. But the reason that he made it is because he w- he was a television producer for many years. His daughter was an actress, Dominique Dunn. Um, she was in Poltergeist. She's the older sister in the first right. Poltergeist movie. She was murdered by her boyfriend. He strangled her outside of her home in West Hollywood in the midst of what was a vicious fight. And um, this, I don't know if you, I put this in the show notes, but I don't know if you've ever heard of the Poltergeist curse. Yes. Yeah. The Poltergeist curse says that people associated with the film franchise, because it was three films, I Mm. think, in the end, Poltergeist were all subject to this curse. Yeah. And she's allegedly the (laughs) first one. Uh, the young actress who played... Everybody
1: from Gone with the Wind is dead, except uh, <laughs> Olivia de Havilland. So what about the Gone with the Wind curse?
0: <laughs> I think Olivia de Havilland killed all those people. I think that's I think very likely. We talk about her with crimes. With a smile on her face. Absolutely, and at, a knife in her at hand. And the
1: proper knife and fork.
0: So, yeah, Eric is clearly not going to engage in a long discussion of the poltergeist I curse. Just, I just, things like that
1: always sort of, I just am like, yeah, okay. That sounds like some other way to promote the movie. I think it was a scary movie, poltergeist. Geist was one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. The first one,
0: yeah.
1: Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily. Some tragic things did happen.
0: That little girl, she, but she made two more movies. I mean, I she shouldn't die just because she made those two movies. But she, she went on to make two more films. It's not like everybody was involved in the first movie, and then they were suddenly all killed as a result of the
1: filming. Like uh, many years ago, there was a movie that John Wayne made where he played Genghis Khan, which I think maybe. It might have been um, the bad karma, the winds of bad karma. But they were filming in the desert outside of um, Las Vegas during the nuclear tests mm. that they actually did there, and pretty much the entire cast died of cancer. Oh Agnes God! Moore had him. The whole cast, like it, was, it had a big impact on the show. They were too close.
0: Wow. Oh, that's awful. And it was that's yeah. So that
1: seems yeah. way more cursy to me.
0: Yeah. Than, than um, the made up poltergeist curse. Yeah, well what, Nancy what?
1: Allen is still fine.
0: Yeah. Nancy Allen was in Poltergeist? She was in the third one. Oh, was she? The, yeah. That was the the John Hancock Tower one. That was the poltergeist right. were in yeah. the high rise yeah. in Chicago. And who
1: was the mom in the first one? Uh Joe Beth Williams. And she seems fine. She's fine. And, uh, Craig, uh, Craig T. Nelson, Nel- yeah. She's actually still got a career. So yeah. like
0: it was a pretty
1: selective curse.
0: Yeah. Well, putting aside this bullshit about the curse, what happened to Dominique Dunn was actually quite terrible. Yeah. Really. Um and this is another the instance, case was worse. This is we cover this a lot here. This is another instance of a judge deciding that certain evidence that really paints the suspect in a specific light is inadmissible. We talked about this in terms of the truth about or the thing about Pam, which we covered a Dateline yeah. episode, which we covered on a previous episode. The judge decided that evidence that the boyfriend of Dominique had been abusive or had threatened physical abuse...
1: Or had beaten her the week before he killed her. ...was inadmissible because it was hearsay. I just... I find that to be preposterous.
0: So his strangling of his girlfriend, fatal strangling of his girlfriend, outside of her West Hollywood home is treated as involuntary manslaughter, and he gets only three years in prison. So this case transforms Dominic Dunn from... Uh, privileged television producer to journalist who goes after like a dog any murder case where he thinks specifically a young woman has been victimized or the system has failed.
1: And the boyfriend's name was John Sweeney. So if you were have an effort to if you're considering hiring a sous chef or yeah. a chef named John Sweeney, don't because he for three years he got three years for murdering Dominic Dunn, Dominique Dunn, and should be working. Uh, as a volunteer helping battered women for the rest of his yeah, life. Yeah,
0: don't let him anywhere near the battered women, because we don't want to retraumatize out No, but he has but to raise yeah, money or the good, clean has their has yard to or whatever. Raise money or provide food. Um, yeah, it was really a sort of horrible story, but it's presented as um, not necessarily a side note, but as an explanation for the case that you're about to see for and why. For the passion that he had for yeah. this particular case. Um, superficial LA side note which I always like to do when these cases are set in Los Angeles they show that he was a the boyfriend was a sous chef at what was at the time one of the trendiest restaurants in town did you ever eat there mama zon Ma no i never i think it was gone by the time i got here when you hear heard the names of these restaurants and you didn't live here they were so wrapped in mystery and elegance you pictured this colonnaded palace in Beverly Hills that was accessed by a vast motor court this is a a, a canopy diner in a mini mall with five head-in parking spaces in front of it. And when I first got here, that was true of almost all the really nice restaurants in town. The, from the outside, they just looked like shit, which I actually think is part of Los Angeles' I think charm. it's really...
1: A lot of them are really sort of dives. Morton's was still here when I got here, which was... That was the, the only really grand restaurant. Yeah. And La Rangerie was still here yeah. when I got here. Those were really sort of grand, but most of them, a lot of them are sort of... Entrance in the back, kind of almost anonymous looking places. Yeah, totally.
0: And so, anyway, that was my mom as on note. We don't have to talk about John Sweeney any more than that. To say he worked at a trendy restaurant that was...
1: should have spent
0: a lot more time in prison. Should have spent a lot more time in prison. So, Vicki Morgan. Young woman from... um, Montclair, which is a suburb of Los Angeles... And the way that her origin story is presented to us, and there there are not a lot of people talking to us in this special, which I kind of like. They have Anne Louise Bardak, who is the co-author of a book named Vicky, which I immediately went out and ordered an out-of-print copy of. Um, And a journalist named Jonathan Beatty, who was was a senior correspondent for Time magazine who covered the case. They're really the talking heads. And then
1: really fabulous Vanity Fair noir photography that's being handled like um, a hyper-caffeinated—what's um, his name? He did uh, the Civil War.
0: Oh, 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 oh.
1: Ken Burns. Ken Burns, yes. Hyper-caffeinated Ken Burns. The The photographs are all moving around, but they're a lot more edgy. They're jumpier than Ken Burns usually does. Those very slow fades and, and pans and mooses mm-hmm. and whatever, but it, this is— ba bam, ba-bam. Things fly into the frame.
0: Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook
1: page at Facebook.com/slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show.
0: Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. And the thing that is great about the hypercaffeinated Ken Burns photographic treatment, as you describe it, is that it fills the spot that would typically be filled by terrible reenactments in another special. As we said, this is reenactment-free, which made me very happy.
1: Yeah, um, and it's fun pictures of stuff, people from the 80s and oh, yeah. the gang, and the, the setting the scene for this really posh, very high-end
0: players kind of story. And the story that they cover which is essentially about an affair between a very rich and powerful man, Alfred Bloomingdale, and a very beautiful young woman named uh, Vicki Morgan. That affair stretches out over, God, almost a decade before we get to the murder. Well, she's
1: 30 by the time she dies, and it starts when she's 17. So, yeah, yeah, it's more than a decade.
0: And they use a device in terms of structuring the story, which you and I know have talked about before. We hate it when it's used in fiction. It's the 24 hours earlier device, right, where... And it so comes from studio executives who don't have faith in the story that you're talking about, but they start at the end and then they flash back and take you all the way up to basically the murder. So we begin on an evening in 1983, I think it's July 7th, 1983, at 3.20 in the morning, a man named Marvin Pancost, who was 33 years old but does not look 33 in the pictures that they show of him, which is a huge red flag about the type of life Marvin has been living. He walks into the North (laughs) Hollywood police station and confesses to a murder that he says took place in an apartment on Colfax Avenue in Studio City. And the victim is 30-year-old Vicki Morgan. And then the voiceover tells us, four days after Marvin confesses, investigators receive a giant tip. And then we go back about 20 years to, like, the birth of Vicki Morgan in Montclair, California.
1: But in this case, since it's a story about the investigation, that is kind of how it would happen. Yeah. Like, so, I like, with fictional accounts and with movies, I really do hate the 24 hours earlier. But really, like, if you're going to investigate a murder... You go back and find out the stuff, you know, all of the underlying information. Yeah, totally. Which
0: apparently the police in this particular case didn't do. (laughs) But we'll get to that. We will get to that. But it is, yes, it is another... It's like... Were they just asleep on major homicide cases until the embarrassment of the O.J. Simpson case years I later? Really I just, it's its another one of those things where when we get to the point where it's time to discuss the evidence collected in the actual murder, nothing's sealed, nothing's inventoried anyway.
1: I don't know. I, I often wonder if we have developed uh, false expectations of what happens in investigations. Like a man walks in. Describes a murder that he confesses, turns himself in, and describes a murder that he committed, and they go to the apartment, and what he describes is they're waiting for them. Right. Like, are you really going to, like, go look for other people? Yeah. You know, like, okay. But I think (laughs) that— It's weird, but that seems sort of asked asked and answered. Like, it's sort of a—it seems like they should have done more, but I can also see how they might have thought— Well, there's no real reason to do more here because this is kind of solved itself
0: yeah absolutely I think and what we'll, what we're going to arrive at eventually is that he's going to recant his confession and that is the moment in which it suddenly becomes important that all the chain of evidence the chain of custody and the and the handling of the evidence becomes crucial because then they have to prove that his confession is actually the truth and they they can't really because of how they've handled the evidence but yeah, yeah. no you're right. I,
1: I I think you're right I think they should but I wonder if we have a false expectation that they do
0: yeah I agree. I think we have a lot of false expectations about criminal investigation, about what resources are available. And as I always say, at the risk of beating a dead horse, I think that 99.9% of what cops or or homicide departments get confronted with are very easily solvable cases, murders committed in a fit of rage, which can be solved in the first 48 hours, as they say. Which is what he presented them. Exactly. And we hear about and listen to podcasts and watch specials about the anomalies, the yeah, really complex, yeah. tricky cases where it's unclear who did it. So we go back in time to uh, Vicki Morgan is 17 years old. She's living in a middle-class suburb of Los Angeles called Montclair, California. And the way that the author- yeah, they were actually
1: really snarky about
0: Montclair. They were. I was like, I hope the Montclair Chamber of Commerce doesn't get a hold of this yeah, because they might have a strongly Vanity, worded letter for Vanity, to Vanity Fair. Fair, who'd really be shaking in their um, there will never
1: Gucci boots. Be
0: another copy of Vanity Fair sold in Montclair as long as I am mayor. So that's
1: we're down two.
0: Yeah. So um, Vicky is seventeen years old, and her father leaves. Her father walks out of well, her family. Her father left. Right about the time she was born. Oh, is that true? Okay, I missed that part. Yeah, her father left.
1: <laughs> I'm right glad you're around, here. Yeah, it was her mom and uh, Vicky and maybe a sister. I it was, but they were left on their own by their father right after she was born, so she never really knew him, and they really, um, you know, they had a tough time of it. Like keeping body and soul together was. Yeah. They were right at the the edge of. Of, of keeping uh, the, their lives going because there was no financial support. He literally abandoned them.
0: Yeah. And so the author, Ann Bardock, who's uh, co-author of the book about Vicky that they use as a source, says that the message that Vicky takes from this is loss of man equals loss of income. She has been socialized through events to believe that you cannot be a financial success without a man or at least a powerful man Supporting you, watching over you. Which well, it is, sure helps. Yeah, it sure helps to have a powerful, rich anyone, yeah. you know, um, man or woman. So anyway, that's, you know, a major dose of foreshadowing for what's in store. She moves to Los Angeles. She's going to make a go of being an actress. She moves at 17, it sounds she really like.
1: is a remarkable looking young woman.
0: She's stunningly beautiful. Yeah. She is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, she's walking down Sunset Boulevard right here, probably steps from where we record this okay. podcast. This is,
1: this is the story they tell.
0: This is the story they tell. Okay, I'm just going to give it to you because I took very extensive show notes because it's a very complicated story. Vicki is just walking down the street, yada yada yada, like she's been out shopping or whatever. They just imply it's a normal day. And this older man suddenly approaches her and says, he was eating at a restaurant on Sunset, saw her through the window, came outside and began talking to her. You look sort of like my daughter Lisa, which he is says really hot. Her, which is really Do creepy. Do you play tennis? Do you play tennis? But this is just a word of warning. If you're a young woman and you're in Los Angeles, particularly in West Hollywood, and an older man comes up and says, You look like my a lot like my daughter, you should run. You should just start running, unless you're interested in getting a check for $8,000, which, which in is 1970 what he slipped her.
1: was an enormous amount of money. Or whenever this was,
0: this was about. I think this was like 1973. Yeah, let me so, check. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now I will say this it, about it that. Go,
0: I'm just going to say this about our show. It goes without fail. If you ask about it, it is not in my show notes. That's right. <laughs> That's how the show a, works. We
1: did it. We did a fake version. I think it's 1970 when they first meet. She's um,
0: 30. This is for the people who it, enjoy doing when math. When did the murder she, take place? 1983, and okay, she's 30. Okay, so it was 1970. You, you did that math fast for yeah, someone. Yeah, well, that's because
1: she be. was 17. Okay. Um, okay, so I think that the story of that meeting is complete bullshit. Okay. I think that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever... When did he write the check? Did he write it before he came out? Did he already have it ready to give to her? How did he know what her name was to write her the check? I just think that has big fat lie
0: written all over it. Now, you know they show the check Uh and it says it's written to cash. Okay. So he might have just said, I might meet a nice young woman I want to give a lot of money to today, so I'm going to pre-write a check to cash. And that's the only
1: way that this story works. (laughs) I just think that is the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. And the way they told it, he's inside the restaurant and he goes out and talks to her on the street and then she leaves the restaurant. So at some point she went in the restaurant? When did that happen? Yeah. When did the check get written? How did this happen? I just think this that was, she yeah. was working as a call girl and he gave he really liked her and he gave her $8,000 to remove her name from whatever list it was on so that she could just be his because side piece. Because let's talk because about... I think the rest of that is just crazy.
0: That's correct. And let's talk about who this man is. This is 53-year-old Alfred Bloomingdale. He is not only the owner of Bloomingdale's department store, which is still a going concern, last time I checked. He invented the concept of the credit card. Yeah. Um, The Diners Club credit card, which was the first, was basically seen as the origin of plastic money. So So this is an
1: incredibly rich man. Unbelievably rich. And so where on Sunset Boulevard is he even eating that he can (laughs) see people out the window? (laughs) I just all of There's that story. Probably is just, the McDonald's is, by me, yeah, that's I think, where the Garden of Hotel yeah, used to the, be. Or the Kentucky Fried Chicken. The Kentucky the, yeah, Fried yeah, Chicken, I just yeah. think this is a, that's
0: a crap story. Okay, like,
1: They got together somehow, but that isn't it.
0: Do you think that's the last crap story we're going to hear in the I, course you know, of this episode? I'm going to reserve comment until we get to other well, parts the, of the, the story. The irony is that the story that you're telling, the version of the story you believe is true, is is way more in keeping with everything that we are told subsequently. Everything. So, um, but... It also, this version goes to what I saw as the agenda of the show, which is which is to paint Vicky as having been completely innocent and pure and corrupted by this predatory, menacing older man. So they were definitely leaning into that story pretty hard. so but
1: that's but that is the sort of um prejudicial, like, prostitution is a job. It is.
0: It's a job. And I am
1: sick of discriminating against people yes.
0: for having a job. And the, But there's a thread running through the whole presentation of the episode, which is that... Once you cross that line, you are signing up for victimhood, or you have been spoiled, or right. ruined,
1: or somehow soiled dove or yeah. something. That's just so Victorian and puritanical. There was some, yeah. Okay. I just, I just really, yeah.
0: And then also, there we're, we're going to get to a discussion of people who like BDSM, and that was also presented in a very leering sort of like BDSM is about it, perversion and whatever. Yeah, and apparently, all that sort of he was stuff. keeping
1: a house full of um, where with a dungeon that he rented in the hills, yeah. where he would. have... Two or three women that he liked
0: beating and whatever, and right? Yeah, that's isn't, what they that, said. Isn't that in they the say, show notes? They say it's beating, but it sounded like consensual yeah. BDSM play, which they were characterizing as physical abuse. If it's not consensual, it's abuse. But there are people in BDSM he, environments but, who consent to various but games. But he went
1: to a house where he could do yes. hire prostitutes to have sex games with, which seems much more likely where he met her than. Walked out of a restaurant and on the walked just, out of the
0: Sunset Boulevard Denny's with, with a check made to out to cash eight, for eight thousand dollars. Eight thousand, okay. like why not ten thousand or five thousand? All of this gets a lot more. If Alfred Bloomingdale was just a swinging bachelor who enjoyed young women and always paid his bills and treated his employees with kindness and respect. That probably would not have resulted in the story that we're about to hear. But he's married to Betsy Bloomingdale, who is the premier socialite in Los Angeles. And
1: maybe even the United States.
0: Maybe the United States. Together they share an absolutely enormous home in the Holmby Hills area of California. If you don't know this neighborhood, I think it is the largest... Concentration of expensive real estate in the country. The Playboy, the Playboy Mansion. The Playboy Mansion. Holmby Hills. It's between Beverly Hills and Bel Air. It's like, it's so exclusive, most people don't even know about yeah. it. They only know about Beverly Hills yeah. and Bel this Air. Is,
1: the people in Holmby Hills think that Bel Air and Beverly Hills are kind of low mark, down market and tacky.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So then we arrive, they've, they start up an affair. It is a paid arrangement. As you said, He's she starts appearing at the house. From the gate. But they make clear that he didn't want to beat her, because again, they're referring to BDSM play as beating. So we're supposed to believe that she's involved in these sexual situations, but she's not involved in the BDSM, because again, that would have tainted or corrupted her. Another thing I don't believe, and why is it necessary yeah. to and make she's, that distinction? And she's distinction? too
1: good for it and whatever. But she is... His paid mistress. Yes. She is
0: on salary as his mistress. And here is where we get to what I saw as the bullshit chapter, although I also agree with you that the, the Sunset Boulevard story is bullshit. In 1973, they're three years into their relationship. They're seeing each other frequently and in public, and Alfred is making almost no effort to hide their affair. So... For reasons that the special does not make clear... At all. ...he encourages Vicky to go to the same hair salon as his wife. And then makes out with her in the car outside. And she sees them and is horrified. And it, it engenders this huge conflict between Alfred and Betsy Bloomingdale. He tells her that Vicky needs to go... She tells him, excuse me, that Vicky needs to go away forever. Betsy seizes control of the finances, and... Um, they, they say he was giving Vicky an enormous amount of money, but, quote, she was never able to budget. That's called spending his money. <laughs> she couldn't stop spending his money. She was, you know, living lavishly. Right. It wasn't like she had a really expensive water heater she needed to get fixed, and she didn't set aside <laughs> the money in enough no, time. No, no.
1: She was really living it up. <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting the Dinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv.
1: And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And dinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews
0: and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. Mm. <laughs> So my question is... Just what, the one. What was Alfred Bloomingdale really trying to make happen by sending Vicky to that salon, by making sure his wife was going to see? Was there something going on in the marriage that he was trying to litigate in this way? Or was he trying to get rid of Vicky and this was the way he was going to do it by arranging for them Nothing to get Nothing about
1: his subsequent behavior would seem like he was trying to get rid of Vicky. Yeah. So I think this looks like a cover story for Betsy hired private investigators, hunted him down like the yeah. Wolverine, angry Wolverine that she won found him got the pictures and took control of the finances Yeah, and this was the cover story
0: and maybe the reason that she wanted to do this was more to take control of the finances than to actually out of some great love for Alfred because my well, god because she, she had, salaried
1: yeah like she can see on the books how much they're spending for this he's spending on this woman right. and so she knows the way to get rid of her is to cut to cut her pay
0: okay which happens okay essentially yeah. this is a period this is a moment where that happens we're going to go back and forth over time so I think he's still giving her something, or he's giving her something under the table. Is that how no, it was No, she working? starts dating other people. Apparently, she hadn't spent all of that money. Okay, apparently not. But let's talk about one of the other influential people she starts dating is uh-huh. apparently Cary Grant. Yeah. Maybe I made this up, but didn't Cary Grant spend his later years living with a boyfriend, or am I wrong well, about that? actually, that was earlier years. Like yeah. I
1: think Cary Grant was more flu- what we would call fluid. Yeah. Today. So he like, was a
0: bisexual. Yeah, yes, like yeah, yeah.
1: He and Randolph Scott were before Diane Cannon. Like, you know what I mean? Okay. It was there was back and forth with him. I think he was a more um you know, I it's one of the things I think is easy to do with actors. You see them in these, you know, dashing uh, macho roles in the movies, and you forget they're really actors. And I don't mean that in any way to denigrate actors, but these are, we're talking about sensitive artistic people yeah. who are much more open to the world that than the maybe macho characters that they're playing I, in absolutely. the movies. And I think that may I think that was very much the case. There was also a big thing where he did experimented with L S D as a way of trying to deal with his own depression.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. He seems to have been a fairly open kind of character. Cool. Works for me. I, w- I would point. have gone out with him, um, yeah. but Vicky Morgan got to him first. Apparently, Alfred is not pleased that no, she is dating, particularly
1: Cary Grant. Grant, because he seems like wow. That's really upmarket for me. I can't really compete with Cary Grant. But fortunately for
0: Alfred, Betsy decides to do a little shopping in Europe. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) Betsy goes to Paris, which I imagine she did quite frequently. She buys just a few gowns. She returns to the country she let's say fudges the amount that those gowns cost she lies her on her customs forms. That's correct. She Gets lies busted. on her customs forms, undervalues the gowns considerably. Um, she is convicted of a felony, uh-huh. which is apparently what that is. And so, hands off the finances, for her. Absolutely. And, and so, and it's good news
1: for Victoria <laughs>
0: because Alfred has an opportunity to once again begin shuttling her money and start up their Gets relationship. Her a
1: spectacular house in the hills, and fancy. Car, live in maid, really fixes it up.
0: Oh, and because we're going to talk about another dollar amount again, we should just say that we had a little research done during our break, and we discovered that eight thousand dollars in that year, that decade's money would be fifty thousand dollars today. And he so was that's the amount her, of the check, and he was so paying we, her
1: eighteen thousand a month at this point. Right. So he was giving her the equivalent. What would that be? hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. A lot of money. A month.
0: A lot of yeah. money. So this is one of those moments where you feel the condensation of the special sort of take effects because suddenly we're at a moment where Alfred's really controlling and suddenly Vicky is popping volume. And I'm like, I feel like we missed a few steps. You know, like I feel like maybe when the relationship came back together, Vicky had some specific expectations that weren't necessarily met. And her drug addiction was sort of taking hold of her and all these things were, you know, like because I, I don't really I, I get weirded out by the belief that someone else causes someone else to use drugs. I think that's a kind of problematic statement. I think statement.
1: There is a, I think Vicki has already at this point in the story demonstrated that she has not made all the best choices. No,
0: she has not.
1: Th- like coming to, when she came to, I figure she must have dropped out of high school, they didn't say, but she was 16 when she came to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so yeah. I figure she hasn't even finished her high school education. She's maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed, mm-hmm. and... Her choices are, well, you know, valid and whatever, maybe not her best. Like, it's one thing to work as a stripper to pay for your law school Mm -hmm. uh, degree. It's another... If that's as far as you've got thought it through,
0: and that is for a very simple, not a moral or puritanical reason, it's for a very pragmatic reason that sex work after a certain age becomes almost right. impossible. You to age get. out of it. You have to have a plan. Right. And I, if you're you know, be a madam, fine, but you need to be saving to buy the house. I have. We have friends who work in porn, who work in the porn industry. We are not nuns here at Christopher and Eric, and they have. You either, by a certain age, go behind the camera, or you go into production, or you go into another business. Yeah, you know, that's just the reality, and the people who don't have a plan usually hit the brick wall at 300 miles And that's what I think happened with
1: Vicky. I think she thought... She didn't think it all the way through and wasn't really ready for the reality of it and and you know like oh well I'm upset so maybe I should take a bunch of Valium.
0: So she took a lot of Valium. Two things are happening around October 1979. Vicky's drug problem is getting serious and intense, and she checks herself into a drug rehabilitation center where she makes friends with another damaged soul named Marvin Pancost. Remember him? We talked about him at the beginning of the right. show. He confessed to having murdered her. He's in gay. 1983. He's gay, and. And he is described as a celebrity hound, which I believe we
1: would call a star fucker today. I think that's the notion. And she had a lot of famous friends because in addition to being um, Alfred uh, Bloomingdale's plaything, he was big pals with the Reagans. That's correct. um, And all of that crowd and helping to get him elected president.
0: He was a member of what they called the Kitchen Cabinet, which was Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan's group of California millionaires who were devising ways to uh, rip off average Americans through fucking with our tax code. <laughs> a little moment of politics the, here oh, on yes, this uh, here on The upward and
1: redistribution of wealth that we are yeah. currently dealing with today.
0: As well as closing all the mental hospitals, which has contributed to the massive homelessness crisis we are currently having here in California. But that's fodder for another podcast. Yeah, for- five- podcast. <laughs> anyway, um but the Reagan campaign is heating up and Alfred Bloomingdale is very immersed in the, in the campaign. Now, at this point, the nature of their relationship and how it relates to Betsy is starting to confuse me given how they're accounting for it in the show. Vicky is literally traveling with Alfred to political events, she's staying in the same hotel 3 floors down from Alfred, even though his oh, wife is really staying with specific. him. Yeah. I was like, three floors down. It's mm. got to be an approximation. It's not a, a Dolly Parton song. Three floors down. <laughs> I don't know. Just made it up. Yeah. Um, So, and Betsy either has no clue. Like, that's the kind of thing it seems like you can get away with if the affair has never been discovered. But, like, if since the affair had been discovered so spectacularly just a few years before, you would think like Betsy would know if you were sneaking out of the hotel room in the middle of the night. Where are you going? Is she here? And maybe she did. And
1: maybe the convicted felon thing caused a renegotiation. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Not privy to what was going on between the two of them, but they got him elected, and Alfred was expecting to actually be an ambassador or something,
0: but... He's diagnosed with throat cancer, and it's very serious. It's a terminal diagnosis. He goes into surgery at UCLA, and it still uh, doesn't manage to get all the cancer out. And, again, Vicky is depicted as being the one who is by his side in the hospital, which raises the question of, where is Betsy at this point? See, the thing that I'm getting at is, like... Given what's to come in terms of court battles and whatever, were he and Betsy even still really married? Like, I'm not trying to justify somebody's affair. I don't believe in cheating or infidelity. But at the same time, like, was this a functional marriage? Apparently, they had their own understanding about it.
1: Again, they didn't make that really clear. They were very public. I remember she was all over Vanity Fair. Um, Betsy Bloomingdale. She was big pals with Nancy Reagan. She was very much running with that crowd. And Alfred was, you know, Alfred. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that what would have been interesting to me, and I know this is, I I think you have to do a deeper dive to get to this, and maybe the book by Ann Bardock uh, will get to this at some point, but I think what really seemed to be driving Betsy crazy was not necessarily the affair. It was the money. It was it the, was the expenditure. One hundred thousand yeah. dollars a month is is not peanuts. A, you know, I'm not going to do math live on the air, but right. I, the, the equivalent
1: li- of giving her yeah. one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a month was yeah, and all of her other expenses because there was shopping and right. staff and cars and rental and none of that was covered by the hundred twenty-five thousand. That was not,
0: just discretionary income. That's not you have a little on the side. That's your you have a second marriage. Yeah, that's really yeah. which is foreshadowing for what is to come so uh alfred dies or uh, it's so betsy cuts off the income to vicky um After but i alfred think dies. that's Alfred, Al- right alfred dies becky uh, betsy excuse me either sees for the first time that this money is going to vicky or she She's, knew all along and she can, he her can't she, he can't stop her now so she cuts her off so she cuts her off so vicky files a palimony lawsuit Against the estate of Alfred Bloomingdale in the amount of five million dollars. Which is essentially, am I wrong here? Like, what is the nature of a palimony lawsuit? Isn't that don't you file that against a husband? Like <laughs>
1: Well, you file that against somebody that you, you wasn't a husband. Right. Like initially, I think it was George Kennedy. I can't even remember. There was somebody who they set the precedent, but the idea it's around this time where the notion was I've given you this time and effort. I've set aside my career to be your partner mate or whatever and while we weren't married where I would get certain but by- legally protections mm-hmm. that you're not giving me. Um I am asking that I get the same sort of um benefits
0: as a spouse. As a
1: spouse would get yeah. because I've been for all intents and purposes a spouse of yours.
0: Yeah. According to my show notes, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe some people who watch the show can correct us, that the, the money to Vicki is cut off before Alfred's death. In 1982, Alfred Bloomingdale dies, but the palimony suit is filed prior to 1982 and when Betsy oh, cuts off the funds.
1: Maybe. That wasn't the way I remembered now, it, but
0: that could well be true. He could have been too sick to know what was going on at that point. That, so, it, you know, Yeah, she
1: may have gotten control of things because he was just incapacitated, but it, w- it wasn't a very long time.
0: It wasn't. So... Alfred dies and the defense that the lawyers make on behalf of his estate is that you cannot file a palimony lawsuit because you were essentially a prostitute which means you were getting paid the mu- you were getting paid for sex which invalidates a palimony claim <laughs> which is like one of those things of like, okay, so what kind of precedent does that set in this area? Like, you, you know, like, so how does that handle... How do we deal with marriage? Yeah, how do we deal with Betsy? How much was she getting of his money a month? Right. I mean, I know she probably had her own Well, that's anyway. all she wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So, what does
1: Vicky do? Although, why was she scrimping then on customs fees? I know. like, Maybe but, he was being tight with her with the, the money. But that's the
0: kind of shit, like, you couldn't afford to declare that amount. It's like, you know, you know they got Al Capone on tax evasion. People
1: do what people do. Yeah,
0: so Vicky... As you said, not necessarily the um, sharpest tool in the shed. She starts shopping a book around town with a ghostwriter who was never identified or engaged with by this particular episode of Vanity Fair mm-hmm. Confidential, and they go around town saying that Vicky's secrets will reveal sexual v- Vicky's book, excuse me, will reveal sexual and political secrets that will make Watergate. Look like a playground. I don't remember Watergate being about sex, but I actually wasn't around when Watergate happened. What they
1: were inferring was because of the connection to the Reagans, there would be lots of political scandal and blowback.
0: So Vicky is now portraying herself not just as Alfred's mistress, but as basically the pass-around plaything of some of the highest uh, officials in the Republican Party and in the newly installed Reagan administration, because at this point Reagan has been elected president. So that is a choice that is going to engender some level of reaction when people find out about it.
1: Yeah, that's going to piss a lot of people off, as I believe what they said in the on the show.
0: Yeah. So, Betsy pissed
1: a lot of people. Mike Vogel, the guy who was basically The our, digital director yes, of Vanity
0: Fair at the time, time that this episode us this was made. through this
1: story, was, said that pissed a lot of people off.
0: But Vicky is out of money at this point. She has hit the end of the road financially, so she moves into— um, an apartment in Studio City. I actually think Studio City is a lovely area of Los Angeles. I lived there briefly Studio myself. City. I was I took exception to it being depicted as I Skid think Row. Christopher <laughs> ought to be on the um Studio City, City Chamber of Commerce.
1: <laughs> yes, because he's such a good Well
0: you all right there, Shaw
1: <clears throat> Quinn. Get a little water get a little in there. Water. I did
0: I, I, have... I drank some tea leaves out of this cup earlier. I think something is in the air, but
1: I think it's almond halls.
0: Oh almond <clears throat> holes. the old almond hole fit. Mm. Sorry about that, guys. No. So, Studio City... Crappy apartment compared to where she's lived before. Yes, I'm Yes, compared sure. to
1: the palace that she had up and perched up in the Bird Streets. Yes, this is definitely not as good. Bird Streets being a particularly nice place in the Hollywood Hills above West Hollywood.
0: Very Hollywood Hills. We don't really like to do these cases unless there's an opportunity for us to give sort of um, okay. bad directions around L.A. County. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be pantomiming a map later. We're gonna of where do all a these... bad directions app. Yeah, I will, however, say I am astonished, and they did it in this special. And they, and they do it a lot, they reference specific L.A. neighborhoods that are not very popular neighborhoods as if everybody should know where they are. And I imagine if I'm watching this and I've lived in Iowa my whole life, why would I care that the house was on Sierra Mar? It's like, I don't know where Sierra Mar. you gotta foreground that stuff for your I audience. I don't really know
1: if that's, I don't know if that's true or not. I,
0: yeah. I, I
1: guess I knew some about L.A. before I moved here, but it's hard to say, and I've lived here so long.
0: Yeah, you really are quite, you're, you're a wise man. Is what you are, as you raise your eyebrows (laughs) at me. You're a very wise man. That was going to be an age crack that that I headed off by proper use of eyebrows. We all have an age. Okay, so, who moves in with Vicky in her new Studio City apartment?
1: But the star
0: fucker. Marvin Pancost. Celebrity hound. Uh, with a long history of psychiatric problems, which they rattle off, and some of them sound a lot like my psychiatric problems. Schizophrenia. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the really, schizophrenia. That sounds really extreme. <laughs> I don't extreme, have schizophrenia. I hope not. No, I don't have schizophrenia. Yeah, I think, yeah. like, that's okay. the heard voices and decided to kill her. Mm. So, so we're now at the moment when it's July 7th, 1983, and Marvin walks into the North Hollywood police station and confesses to Vicky's murder, and his quote is, I couldn't take her complaining. She treated me like a servant. And uh, he killed her, or he is claiming he killed her on the same day she was about to be evicted from the apartment. So clearly the drug problem was not under control. Things were a mess. Marvin is described earlier on- landlord euthanasia. Yeah, (laughs) apparently so. (laughs) I don't see that becoming a hashtag. But... um, (laughs) He uh, he claims he killed her and that she was treating him like shit and he basically he was fascinated with her from the moment that they met because he saw her as being associated right. with all these celebrities. Okay. Um, four days after this murder, a Hollywood connected attorney, and that's how the special describes him, a Hollywood connected attorney, sort of like you know Beverly Hills yeah. adjacent. He's not
1: actually a lawyer, but he plays one on
0: TV. His name is Robert Steinberg. He announces, I'm assuming through a press conference, right?
1: I can't imagine. Maybe he just gets a, um, a, a,
0: <laughs> a megaphone. A megaphone and goes out on Hollywood Boulevard. He goes to the restaurant it. where Alfred What's Bloomingdale was bullhorn. eating That's and gets a, bu- a bullhorn bull or a megaphone. They can be, yeah, megaphones. Yeah. yeah, own your equipment. Here Unelectrified. He says that a mysterious blonde, yeah, a mysterious blonde cannot be Vicky because she's dead now. Brought to his office. <laughs> Which makes her, at the very least, not mysterious. Although it would be really mysterious if she showed up. That would be really mysterious. Okay, a mysterious blonde brings him three Betamax cassette tapes.
1: Just to really make it period.
0: Yes, and Robert... Steinberg, the attorney, the last
1: three Betamax
0: recordings. <laughs> these were the last three Betamax cassettes in existence, and he claims, and I assume that he watched these tapes, the attorney who made this announcement, and says that they contain um, films of Vicky having sex with various Republican Party officials at the Republican Party convention, not on the floor of the convention. But the, the well, convention they didn't
1: specify that it could have been. But yeah, one thing's probably not because there would have been other non Betamax footage of that. But
0: if it was a really boring and, speaker, and we are now at
1: what I would consider bullshit part
0: two. Bullshit part three, if you include my my bullshit. Oh, yeah. about yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. So bullshit part three
1: is um... that there are Betamaxes of her having sex with. Like that wouldn't have been enough to get her. Um, to feather her nest and get her a mansion
0: in Holmby Hills of her own. So, but we also don't know <clears throat> who had these tapes. Like, we don't know if Vicki ever had, let's just say what happens next. Robert is asked by the police to hand over the tapes, and wouldn't you know it, they're stolen somebody from his got, office.
1: Somebody got those tapes out of his law because
0: office. Because attorney's offices are so easy to break. You know, like, I just whatever. And because
1: if you have something like three Betamax tapes, you just leave them on the receptionist
0: desk yeah, next like, to the candy dish. And, you know, you can trust people. And um, apparently the Beverly Hills Police Department is who made this request, which suggests that Robert Steinberg, the attorney, was based out of Beverly Hills because we're hearing less about North Hollywood and Studio City. Yeah. So I guess they are going to launch an investigation into sex tapes that were taken at the convention. That actually doesn't make any sense to me. However, I want to point out for our for our yes. deep cut true crime TV club listeners that this moment in the special, you get a glimpse of Dateline Dennis in his much <laughs> Much younger With days. With that blonde hair. Yeah. I was like, "Well, Yeah, totally. So anyway, okay. Um, for, for super um, TV, true crime TV nerds. So uh, am I leaving anything out? Have I skipped over anything that I've jumped really, out at you? That's kind of the show. Okay, but now we're at the trial of Marvin Pancost. Yeah. So this is when Dominic Dunn, who we talked about earlier, really enters the fray in terms of covering this trial believing that Vicky will be potentially wronged by the system, that she was a plaything that was cast aside and screwed over by everybody. Um, This jeopardizes his own personal society connections. In Hollywood, Dominic Dunn used to be a television producer. He knows Betsy Bloomingdale. She is not happy that he is covering this case in the way that he is. I believe, side note, that... Dominic Dunn didn't write a nonfiction book about this, but he wrote a novel that was inspired by this. I'll post the title of the novel on the Facebook page. Because it's I'm not gonna in your notes. to check it out. Because <laughs> once again, if it is a value and I want to talk about it, it is not in my show notes. Um, the, uh, Marvin has recanted his confession at this point. He's saying, I, I didn't know what happened. I woke up. She was dead. I assumed I killed her which is a big assumption to make, but if he does have a documented history of schizophrenia, maybe there's some... Anything's possible. Um, the recant recanted confession, and also the problems around the evidence, are, are, are not...
1: In his favor.
0: ...are not in his favor. However, there are allegedly neighbor eyewitnesses who claim to have seen men, quote-unquote, walking in and out of the apartment that morning carrying out boxes. Yes. So... What do you think we're being asked to believe?
1: Well, I think we might just as well go ahead and wrap up that after deliberating for four hours, the jury convicted him. Yes, And I think that we're being asked to believe that there was somehow some bigger government plot or something. Yeah, that Ronald Reagan killed her. Ronald Reagan or whatever. And I think that it's very likely that Pencoast killed her Mm -hmm. himself or was being paid to take the fall for her death. Yeah. Those are the two things that I think are more likely. Um, was she killed to shut her up? I guess that's possible. hmm um, I don't believe the tapes existed. Mm-hmm. So, no,
0: no tapes were ever found, which they tell us through a coda at the very end of so the So the only
1: source would be her... Um saying that when I was when say Uncle was first about to come out,
0: which was your novel say Uncle right yeah. at the
1: same time, the publisher that was um
0: uh, uh,
1: Dutton, who was publishing my book, was also scheduled to bring out a book by um a young porn star um hustler named Gavin Dillard mm-hmm. about his time in Hollywood with uh, Hanging around with famous Hollywood types and Hollywood people—the
0: Velvet Mafia, as they call them, I or guess. used to call them twenty years maybe ago. Maybe they still,
1: do, or maybe it was just Mike Ovitz in that really, really ill-advised um, article, yeah, article yeah. that he wrote. Anyway, um, and and you know, like he was naming names and big Hollywood illuminaries, and then it just went away, and they didn't publish it, and nobody ever mm-hmm. mentioned it again. So I think that. That's going to be, you know, I kind of like okay, and that was ten years after this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, I think that it was a time when that making things go away might still have been a possibility. It was easier killing her seems really extreme.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: really, all this woman wanted was some money, mm-hmm. and so for five million dollars, they could have shut her up, and I think they would have.
0: Well, here's the irony of ironies. And I also, before I say this, let me put this note in. With Sometimes with these specials, you have to watch through the end credits because they'll have what I I think are called codas, little title cards that pop up on the end of the screen at the very end. A year and a half after her murder, she won her palimony suit. The letter that Alfred signed on his hospital bed to her, which she had used as proof of this relationship, um, got her $200,000 that don't say who got the money. Did it go to her mother? Did it go to her family? I have no idea. I assume it went to her heirs under California law. Um, and Vicky's mother later said that her daughter could have been a great actress if she just hadn't met Alfred Bloomingdale.
1: Which I think is
0: really I don't wishful think thinking. I don't think that's true. Since there's no that evidence narrative.
1: that she ever acted a day in her life, yeah. that seems unlikely, yeah. but Again, that could just simply not have been included in the story.
0: Marvin Pankos died in prison in 2001.
1: Right. That would have been the
0: interesting one to me. Like yeah.
1: if he had lived long enough to get out of prison because he was sentenced to 25 years. So he could have been out in 15. Yeah. Um he might could have shed some light on all
0: this. I think there were two grown-ups in this story. I think Vicky was very young when she first met Alfred Bloomingdale, but I think that there were two grown-ups in this story and I think that the narrative they presented us with uh, I I think was heavily one-sided. I'm absolutely and would never justify anybody's murder unless it was an act of self-defense and I don't think Vicky deserved to be murdered, but I think that the the notion that she was ruthlessly corrupted by this guy was a little Victorian and a little puritanical to me. You know, I, I, I wish she had had some better breaks and and better turns of luck. Yeah. But I think that there was more to this story. And honestly, we get to this conversation a lot here on this podcast because we are not giving you, our listeners, an exhaustive review of the entire case. We didn't research this. We are giving you this hour of television, and we're essentially reviewing yeah. what this hour presents us with. And I felt that there was an effort to lean on that story in particular, that I think probably shaved off a lot of the side stories and a lot of the nuance. And but at the same time, I want to make that point and not say I don't I don't believe Vicki Morgan got what she, she deserved in any respect. I don't think anybody deserves to be beaten to death with a baseball bat unless they are actively trying to kill someone else.
1: But I don't think that she was an innocent victim in all of this. I think that she...
0: In the affairs and in the prostitution and all of that. that I think that she had was, the relationship yeah. that she had with her eyes wide open and yeah.
1: maybe contributed to her own um, bad luck by making some poor choices. I don't think if, if people were killed for making poor choices, there would not be a population problem on the no. planet yeah. currently. Plenty of people Most of us choices. would be dead. Yeah. Um. So I don't think that's the case. But I do think that this was... It seemed like... That this was presented with a particular perspective that I didn't necessarily agree with. Starting with the meeting on Sunset Boulevard, I didn't believe the truth of what was depicted as their relationship and who she was.
0: I think I've told this story before, and maybe we'll 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 wrap up if you're bored with it and don't want to hear it again, Eric Shaw Quinn. (laughs) But I won't name names. But we have a friend who worked on. Television specials like this for many years. It was actually his bread and butter while he wrote novels on the side. And he described going to cover a case uh, in uh, not California, outside of California, a small town murder of some sort, but which had drawn some attention. I can't even remember what the case was. But he was arriving to cover it I, a few months after a very, what was at the time a very major news magazine had gone to do its own episode. Uh-huh. And he said, upon reviewing all of the evidence that was available to him for the production of their show, that it looked to them like the major news magazine had simply made up their version of events, that it was so wildly out of sync with what they were seeing about this murder. and. I wonder if sometimes, I mean, I'm not going to wage that accusation against our old favorites like Dateline and 2020. But there's been that hours. kind of
1: back and making of a murderer has had that yeah. kind of back and forth since it came out. I mean, I think that's one of the aspects of true crime programming.
0: Uh, you know, like it, is that who's to say what's the truth? Exactly, and I think that if the agenda is to present all of the evidence that you encounter in an unvarnished way, because you're not at trial, you're, you're not about. It's not about defending your client. It's about portraying the case if that is your agenda i'm more likely to buy in and open up to what you have to say and i'm more likely to draw my own conclusions but if I think you are censoring things or leaving stuff out deliberately to to craft a certain story, I don't know. It's a tough call. It's a tough call because I think there are producers over these shows who say, no, you need to tell this story. This is the story we want to tell. I need you to conform stuff to I, fit. You
1: know, I can't know that. I can yeah. only, in this context, react to the show that we're seeing. And there were parts of the show that I just felt like were either naive or contrived.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So... As we have explained, I think, in our previous episode, we're on, what are we going to call it? We're on an alternating plan of sorts. Right. We're going to do True Crime TV Club one week, and then we're going to do Christopher and Eric have big opinions about something non-crime related. Or come in and run our mouths for a bit. It's um, award season in Southern California. Mm -hmm. It's award season everywhere in the entertainment industry currently. And so we're going to have some things to say about that that aren't necessarily about The individual films, but about the nature of awards, award seasons, what they mean and what it means to have other people try to define successful works of pop culture for you. Okay, we're going to get super philosophical about it. That's or, how I'm we'll, gonna tell. Or,
1: we'll, or we get sidetracked or and talk about something else. Eric
0: will make an egg sandwich for breakfast the day of our recording. It will explode on his face. He will tell the story, and it will be all anybody wants to talk about on our Facebook page. Which is fine, too. Well, until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw And you have been listening to TDBS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks.